0: This is, uh, this is a moment I've been waiting for for quite a while. This gentleman kind of grew up with me or I grew up with him. I, as I said earlier in the show, I didn't have a lot of friends growing up. I kind of <laughs> sat at home and watched a lot of TV. And uh, a lot of the shows I watched was actually this gentleman. I couldn't believe that he could actually uh, infiltrate the mind of like a, a 12-year-old kid. Graham Kerr spent the first half of his life becoming the most famous cook in the world, chef even, and a television entertainer who at the height of his uh, 1960s fame as the Galloping Gourmet was seen by 200 million people in 38 countries, sold 14 million cookbooks and circled the world 28 times. He spent the second half of his life uh, galloping away from, from that image, that food, that money, that lifestyle. And he joins us today to kind of share his journey on our show. Thank you for your time.
1: Oh, thank you for yours. Pleasure.
0: you. are uh, off in the West Coast, I think. Are you at home in, uh, was it a Kirkland, Washington, somewhere um, around there?
1: Actually, we moved out of Kirkland. It was becoming a bit like yuppie heaven. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, people in spandex with, uh, with, with matching um, brow perspiration pads, you know. You must leave when that happens. Actually, yeah. Trina bought me a running suit, and it looked... Suspiciously like my neighbours, that I thought. That oh, no. we no! That's so it. We're about 60 miles north <laughs> of Seattle. Right. About halfway between Vancouver and Seattle.
0: Are you actually Graham? Are you actually Scottish? Or are you English? Or are you a Kiwi? I mean, what are you?
1: <laughs> I, I tried to keep that quiet for the first part of my life because, um, you know, when you when you wind up in 38 countries around the world, they like to claim you as their own, and they did so that was rather fun but i was born in london i'm scottish parents
0: and where were your parents from in scotland
1: um from midlothian about um right down on the border we used yes. to steal the english sheep yeah yeah so. are you are you actually an ordained
0: presbyterian minister
1: i'm actually a, 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 a <laughs> this is going to be i don't know whether we'll lose half our audience but um <laughs> Uh, i am an elder uh, which is ordained uh, in the presbyterian church wow and i'm i'm a pastor in the assemblers of god church
0: wow how did you mix those two that's like oil and water well, uh
1: I've, in in youth for the mission um you know we're avowedly sort of hey you love jesus come on yeah. um and that was our attitude so our, our position was that The Assemblers of God said anyone who's served for um, 10 years in in YWAM was entitled, if if you wish to have it, um, uh, the Assemblers of God credentials. Wow. Oh, I can marry and bury people.
0: Beautiful. Beautiful. You and Fred Rogers. Do you remember Fred Rogers? Yes, I do. And what was your association with compassion? I think you, did you not do something with them back in the day?
1: Yes, I was was going to mention that having, you know, just tuned in uh, to to your last conversation. Uh, We have been sponsoring kids now for, gosh, uh, 12 years. Um, I think it's even more than that. Um, And one of them, Sadiq, has now uh, gone on to university, and we are are supporting him through that. It's as if he's one of our children. Um, That's great. uh, He is one of our kids. Um, Without us, I think he might not have made it. He's in Ethiopia. Right. Right. And, of course, that's a place where there's a lot of struggle in student um, uh, discussion about Islam and Christianity. And um, he has learned through um, being raised in the compassion um, system, if you will, um, he has learned very clearly who Jesus is. Hmm. And he is able to very clearly articulate that. He's just a fine young man. I can't tell you how grateful we are that we found out about compassion.
0: Tremendous. What was your association with Central America? You did a fair bit of work down there as well, I think.
1: Yes. um, We wanted to be able to find uh, a group of people who were living in uh, uh, what we would call having been left out in the normal distribution of goods and services. Now, I I know that's a long-winded way of saying that people are poor, but, you know, quite a few people are poor, And are not exactly left out. But those who are poor and left out tend to be hopeless. And so we wanted to get to people who were in fact hopeless. We wanted to be able to take hope. And what we wanted to do was to be able to take the amount of food that might be harming us as individuals and individual donors. and, And work out what that actually is and then transfer that to an area of real poverty and deliver that with the systems necessary to be able to develop um, proper nutrition through proper gardening, if you will. Yes. So we had French biodynamic agriculture and uh, sustainable agriculture.
0: Where, where, and, uh, where was this, actually, in Central uh,
1: America? In, this was in Belize.
0: Oh, in Belize. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Well, again, Compassion works uh, a lot in Belize. And actually, just for our listeners' uh, sake here, over the month of December, every show we are going to try to get five uh, children sponsored wow. through Compassion. And Wonderful. Uh, a bit of a push there just for the end of the year.
1: Well, do you know what we did? Um, we found out... Uh, within our, you know, analysis of our own lifestyle, that there were certain things. For example, a couple of cookies a day. Now, a cookie cost about 17 cents. It's so nice now that the Canadian dollar is the same as the U.S. dollar. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to make the convention.
0: Yeah, we don't have to go to those uh, standard jokes. by the way. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, yes. <laughs>
1: um, so, at 17 cents a cookie... Um, and if one consumes, say, six a day, which I used to because I'm a very energetic person and I seem to think that cookies did it, um, I cut that by two cookies a day and so did my wife, Trina. And from that, we saved about 64,000 calories. Good night. And, of course, because of that, we lost some weight, uh, which is wonderful um, and uh, very good. Um, but... We actually saved two hundred and eighty four dollars in that year huh. from cookies alone, wow. so that made it possible for a child to come out of absolute poverty and the possibility of not making it um, was the cost of two cookies each
0: well done and by the way, can I just start off the uh, the interview by encouraging you to to write more? not less, as you're sort of <laughs> advancing into your years here, because the, the first few chapters of this day-by-day gourmet cookbook, which I have in my yeah. hand, you know, I opened it up and thought, okay, uh, there's a cookbook, yeah, the recipes and little blurbs here and there. And then I got to this, uh, the first few chapters. My goodness, there is more wisdom in these first few chapters than I've seen in, in, in great big thick books, let alone just the first few chapters of a cookbook.
1: Well, thank you. Um, uh, I don't see any point in just writing another cookbook. You know, when when you've you've done the number of cookbooks that I have, um, you don't need to write another one. No. But what I felt was uh, that I needed, because we had been talking about this word outdulgence. indulgence we all know, you know, a big ice cream or a big steak or a, a supersize me on the french fries, whatever it might be. There's something that we know that we're going to treat ourselves at that moment. But in actual fact, we are threatening ourselves. And if you look at that word treat and threat, they're almost exactly the same word except for the letter H. Hmm. Okay? So if you take the letter H out of threat and snap that portion size back, it becomes a treat. So what, what we were doing is we were taking the difference between treat and threat and giving that... Um, uh, through this system called Outdulgence, which we wrote a book about called um, Recipe for Life, which was the prelude to it. And I just felt that it's okay to write a book about a spiritual journey, but, but but would you please give me some signposts? Um, Tell me how that works in my day-to-day life. And that's what I wanted to do. And I wanted to be able to say, look, this is not like you know, the smell of an oily rag. (laughs) Isn't that a horrid thing? (laughs) But my father used to say, oh, gosh, smells like the smell of an oily rag, you know. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, This is not um, the kind of food which is unacceptable. Right. I, I wanted this to be a celebration of food. God created it. He put most magnificent flavors and textures and aromas and colors into things, and we should celebrate that. So, And and there's nothing worse than um, eating gruel and saying, I'm religious. Um, that's all part of the legalistic yes, process yes, that's that we right. don't like. No. So we said, okay, how do we celebrate, but how do we celebrate within reason and within moderation, And then what do we do with the difference between the reason and the moderation? And so, bless you. That's exactly what we wanted to do with the book. Good,
0: good. Well, the quote I want to just refer to real quickly, and folks, again, we are on the phone with the one and only Galloping Gourmet Graham Care, and it's care, not Kerr.
1: Oh, bless your heart. Thank you. Want to get that one straight? Yeah, that's the north of the border bit. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Abundant
0: life means having enough to share, and I am just up to here with those who claim this abundant life, and what they're meaning by it is that, well, God wants you to be filthy rich. Drives me nuts. So I love your definition. Abundant life means having enough to share. Well said. Good, thank you. Well said. Uh, doing the research on you, Graham, I, I discovered we, we we actually don't have much in common, except the fact that we both love food. Yes. We're both followers of Christ. Yep. And we're both high school dropouts.
1: <laughs> well done. You made it.
0: <laughs> Age fourteen, I think you bailed
1: absolutely my, my my father had introduced me to the kitchen at ten and by fourteen I was quite tall and um, and uh, it was both the kitchen and the dining room and the dining room I got tips
0: yes so that was it that's it done well how did you go from the Roebuck hotel in East Sussex mm. to serving five years in the British Army as catering advisor
1: well first of all in those days you were you had to You you had to serve. You know, you were called up, drafted. Um, uh, It was national service in England. And um, my father said, um, my boy.
0: My boy. (laughs) He did,
1: my boy. It is a fate (laughs) worse than death if you went into the Army Catering Corps. And there's just a possibility because of what you've been doing here in the hotel, etc., that uh, that they'll, they'll put you in there, and you mustn't do that. So go down the road to Fred. The motor mechanic and uh, and work with him for six months, <laughs> so I went into the Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers, oh. and I was waiting for a radar course, of course, and I cooked to dinner in the officer 's mess. I was asked to do that, and um, because they for some reason they didn 't trust the cooks that they had and it was a triumph, um, actually as I remember it, it was pretty good. Um, and the major Army Catering Corps advisor came out and said, when did you go through the School of Cookery? And I said, well, I haven't. I'm waiting for a radar call. He said, do you want to be a corporal? I said, yes, of course. <laughs> There's the tip business again. And um, so I was drafted as a, a culinary instructor at the headquarters School of Cookery in, in Omer in, in Aldershot. And I had an argument with the major, where well, the colonel in charge of that, who was teaching Brunoise Paysanne and Julienne garnishing in kitchen classroom number one. And I said, why are you doing that? Surely what they need to know is how to make a good brown stew. (laughs) And he said, are you arguing with me? And so I wound up as a drill and weapon training instructor. um, But eventually got to be um, a catering advisor, much to my father's chagrin.
0: (laughs) Well, Well, Graham, when was the last time you actually visited the Royal Ascot in England?
1: Do you know it's been pulled down? Oh, no. Yes. Um, it's been, it, it has made way for a block of condominiums right, right across the road from My Fair Lady's Royal um, Ascot.
0: So, oh, my goodness.
1: Um, Were you not a
0: manager there?
1: Yes, I was general manager there at an extremely um, diaper oh. age. 21, 22. (laughs) And and I thought I was on the road to ultimate success, which was to be the managing director of the Dorchester in London. That's what I wanted to be. And um, that didn't happen. And uh, so we were were propelled um, out to New Zealand. Um, we, We just wanted to get as far away from the kind of business life where you work 16 weeks without a single day off, which was one thing. And and we lost our second child that way with fluctuating blood pressure with Katrina. Oh, boy. And we just said, this is ridiculous. Let's go. And uh, as we upped stakes and... uh, I got a job as chief catering advisor to the Air Force in New
0: Zealand. Well, you know, you mentioned Trina there, and I—I just—we uh, need to bring this up because this is such a huge part of your life. Right. i I can just think back when two tectonic plates moved suddenly, <laughs> and and you and uh, you were at a strawberries and cream party, and a badminton game went suddenly awry, <laughs> and and, uh, and of course it was the end of your soccer career, and uh, you were 11, she was 10, and and bliss ever since.
1: Yes, we were playing um, badminton on the lower lawns of the hotel, and we knocked the shuttlecock into a giant rhododendron bush. Must have been about twenty feet high. And uh, so we both dove into the into the um, bush in order to try and find the shuttlecock. And in the cool of an English afternoon, oh, yes. uh, our hands
0: touched. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Now hold on though.
1: I still remember that.
0: But you you were 11 and I my recollection of 11-year-old boys is when they touch a girl it's ick.
1: Well that was right up until Trina that was exactly right. Yes. Yes. But but Trina was powerfully different. Yes. I mean God had already constructed this perfect woman for me and this perfect man (laughs) oh i listen to you (laughs) what a match
0: oh yeah how in the world did you land you know this this british stage actress trina van doom i guess 1955 was was that the wedding that's right how did you propose i hear it created a bit of a stink so to speak
1: (laughs) i took her for a walk um uh, in an english country afternoon which of course is always messy and uh, we we came to a cattle crossing, and um, so it looked as if it was more messy than just normal. And so I said gallantly, can I pick you up and carry you across? And she just looked at me with that kind of sly little look and said, sure, if you can manage it. <laughs> <laughs> so I whisked her off, you know, I made a stalwart attempt at it. Yes. Just, she's a very slight thing, so of course I was able to do that. And strode manfully out into what looked like a shallow, muddy spot. But I went right up to my, almost to my knee oh. in a mixture of cattle feces and, and British soil. Beautiful. So, uh, you know, at that point, I was way down on one side, but hadn't dropped it. And she looks at me very close, and she said, now what are you going to do? <laughs> so I said, will you marry me? <laughs>
0: Uh, well, of course. Then, in '58, I think you moved to Wellington, New Zealand. Yes. Where you were appointed chief catering advisor for the Royal New Zealand Air Force. And in 1960, you were given an order by
1: the New Zealand Air Force to flip an egg on TV. How about that? Actually ordered, and and I said no. <laughs> and and gently, Bentley, which was the the, the nickname given to the PR guy um, for the Air Force, he said. This is not... Uh, sorry, I'll break into the... They said, this, this is not a suggestion. This is an order.
0: Oh, well done.
1: Yes. <laughs> so I'll expect you to do that now. <laughs> and I didn't know that there was any television because I was on on the second day of television. There was only 50 TV sets in the whole country at that time.
0: And you shot right to number one.
1: Yes. <laughs> do you know, I'm the only person you'll ever meet with a 100 rating. <laughs> Uh, Well, of
0: course, later in Australia, you starred in the successful cooking show Eggs with Flight Lieutenant Kerr. Oh, God. Yeah, we'll just put that one aside, shall we? Sure. Uh, Well, I I spent five years in Australia, and uh, they're still showing uh, a lot of Graham Kerr down there.
1: It's really amazing. You know, I did that program at the end of the newsreader's desk where we normally find the weatherman at the present moment. But there I was with a silver Garadon, which is a sort of a silver flaming lamp, methylated spirit lamp. And a copper pan which I'd nicked from the Royal Escalade Hotel. <laughs> On oh, my way, oh Lord, I, that's something I haven't confessed.
0: Um Well it's off your chest now and uh, Yeah,
1: that's right. <laughs> thank you Lord, yeah. for that. And thank you that they pulled the place down so I can <laughs> make restitution. <laughs> <That's
0: right. laughs> Well, of course, uh, you returned to Canada. Sixty-nine became the Galloping Gourmet, and uh, boy, the rest is history, as they as they say. Uh, you, Tessa, British; Andy, Kiwi; Karina, Aussie. But you yes, know, you, if we'd only had a Canadian. I know. <laughs> like what happened? But well, we tried, oh. you know. But there we are. <laughs> but as a father, uh, too distant and self-occupied, a chip off the old block, just like your dad.
1: Yes. Yes, um, I guess so. Um, My father was a wonderful man, Um, just um, about the most genial, um, pleasant, um, not over-the-top sort of person that you could feel immediately at home with, just like that. Hmm. Um, And as honest as the day was long, you know, there wasn't a penny that was ever out in anything that he ever did.
0: Well, he, he was Scottish.
1: Yeah, (laughs) and yet he absolutely could not understand our faith in Jesus. He just couldn't. And in fact, when he died, he left a message for a written uh, letter to my mother, you know, asking her to continue to believe in the White Brotherhood in in London and, and, and reincarnation and the whole bit that he firmly believed in. Wow. So... um. You know that there are some people who who truly um, study something in depth and all of that in-depth study has to be wound off before actually the new wound on can take place there's a renewing of the mind and I think I think that we have to spend patient time I wish I had um, with him trying to ask him about his faith and, uh, and 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 um, and lining it up, um, and gi- to 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 give a real reason for the hope mm. that we have. Uh,
0: speaking of of regrets, I I wonder about any regrets you might have looking back on your parenting.
1: Oh my goodness, why not? We I mean, all do,
0: but yours was uh, certainly more public.
1: Yes, and uh, do you know, uh, Billy Graham says um, that how he would have wished. Had he had his time over again. Spent spent,
0: spent more, more time at home.
1: More time at home. Yeah. And you keep on getting this thing from the politicians, you know, who say, uh, giving it up, to spend more time with the family. And then you get the pundits go, ha, 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 we've heard that before. But, you know, yes, um, a life of public service, one way or the other, um, uh, is a drama. Because I think, especially as a Christian, we feel that we're called for a specific purpose, to deliver a specific message. And therefore, it's quite beyond us to be able to do that, and quite within his capacity to do it through us. And oh. and and therefore, there is a, a sense of, uh, of saying, I, c- I cannot say no to this Lord if you're saying yes. Hmm. And that's the difficulty when it comes to, you know, going back to one's children and um and being there for them at the same time. And I just haven't done that. Um, but we have repaired that situation these, these last years. Good for you. And I must say that each one of our kids, although we're widely separated from each other, we just adore each other, and we feel very much loved and very much forgiven. We we actually went in detail over the things we felt that we had made as mistakes.
0: Oh, that's tremendous.
1: And And they in detail with tears, you know, hugged us and said, oh, we love you and we forgive
0: you, you know. Graham Kerr on the phone with us, of course, the galloping gourmet. Uh, I, I'm just trying to think of all of your children. Quite often times we're, we're toughest on the eldest, and I wonder how Tessa managed. I, I know that there's some, you know, she certainly went through some tough stuff of her own, didn't she?
1: Yes, she did. Um, yeah, um, I think that's her testimony rather yes. than mine. Um, but, you know, it was... Tough at the beginning, when actually we had to ask her to leave our house because she was making life such a miserable thing for her for, for, for her mother. Yeah, and it was just so bad. And she 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 married soon after that and had a disastrous marriage of many years. Mm. Um, and she tried and tried and tried and tried and just couldn't make it. Um, now she's remarried and uh, to an absolutely wonderful fellow. And um, uh, and she she is the champagne bubble in our family. She is irrepressible, <laughs> and loves the Lord with all of her heart. Oh, and that's just, great. Um, to, she's, she's she's a little bit like her mother. Oh. Her mother Trina is like a <clears throat> fairy godmother, um, if you'll forgive the analogy, who with <laughs> with a big wand with a star on the end of it. Um, belts people over the head and they get covered in stardust and it gives them goosebumps and they smile and laugh and everywhere she goes she does this and everywhere um, tessa goes she does that um these people are the most wonderful encouragers in the world. They just give themselves endlessly to other people, and yet are very private people,
0: Right, surprisingly. Yes, yes. Yeah. You know, we were talking about how you were similar to your father in many ways. Of course, he was a hotelier who did a bit of acting on the side, I think. And, yes, that's right. And what a perfect combination for the father of the galloping gourmet. <laughs> uh, the, but some of, these, uh, some of those episodes, I think back, I mean, quite comical, quite entertaining, I understand it was it was at Trina's insistence that you became funny. Were you a bit of a dud before that?
1: <laughs> I'll admit to anything. <laughs> um, almost. Um, now, I think she said, you've got a really natural sense of humor, and you just love helping to pe- make people laugh, which I did. That's the hotel business for you. Yeah. And what was happening to me was that I was on television and was given a <laughs> – I was on between um, Peyton Place and The Avengers um, at 8 o'clock on a Wednesday night nationally in New Zealand. And that's prime time, man. You know, um, and I was devastated. I, I could not, every episode I went to enormous trouble because I realized there would be people watching me who knew much more about food than I did. And I was dead worried about being discovered for being a person who didn't know enough and so I compensated for that by working really hard to make sure that I knew what I was saying and doing so the result of which was I was really uptight <laughs> and, and boring and Tr- Trina said you are the most boring man in the world and you need to do something about this and she was the one who said listen, tell a joke I, I, can't, I can't do that jump over a chair with a glass of wine. I can't, you know, what would Julia Child say? <laughs> yeah. And and Trina said, I doubt whether Julia Child is going to be a substantial part of your audience. Now, just, you know, think of some lady in Des Moines. <laughs> and so that was it. Um, and uh, I did exactly what she said. I thank God for her, you know, because um, uh, I started, I, in the Part of the program where I did the food, I worked enormously hard to make sure that was right. In the part which was her domain, which was to to make an audience of 380 people laugh constantly, you know, three audiences back to back, 195 new shows a year. Wow, Um, to do that was hers, and um, gosh, you know. If, if she was, she used to great me after each program. I got an A plus for a really wonderful show which was full of fun and yet the food was just fantastic. And then it went sliding scale down to a C. And if I got a C, I had to redo the program. So, um... <laughs> well, did, did you ever do the
0: show? I'm sorry for this question, but I, it's just something I've, I remembered uh, when I was watching your show and I was younger and I, I thought back to it. Did you ever do the show drunk?
1: No, absolutely not. Um, uh, Half in the bag? i, I got to tell you how this came about. Um, we looked for a way of joining the program together um, uh, <clears throat> for the BBC, because the BBC had no commercials. Right. And... Trina came up with the idea, well, look, um, let, let's give you a glass of wine. Um, you can grab it on the beginning of the show and then jump over the chair with it, put some saran wrap over the top so it doesn't go everywhere. <laughs> and, um, and then what you can do is you, say, you can say, ah, time for a short slope, and then lift it up and then um, swig at it. And then as you do that, uh, we'll take a cutaway of the glass and then a cutaway of you, and then the glass going back down again, and we'll be able to seamlessly put in the commercial, or uh-huh. take out the commercial. Right. And so that's what we did. And so. But people accused you of being a lush, didn't they? Because oh, you
0: were known I mean, as that British fellow with the glass of wine.
1: <laughs> well, you see, the glass of wine was just simply, uh, you know, it, it was a in United States. There are an awful lot of commercials. Yeah. And so, therefore, there were an awful lot of short slopes. And so you can imagine that the only way that this guy could have ever behaved like I was behaving in the first place was that I was (laughs) three parts to the wind anyway. Yes. But, no, I only ever was inebriated in my life once, and that was when Tessa was born. And I thought that was a rite of passage, and I got drunk with a local policeman um, who managed to get me home and I was violently sick. I have a, a tender stomach towards alcohol, and so I do not drink more than, more than two drinks at a time. Um, I, I could not take. Right. Never been, uh, but...
0: Well, we've cleared the record on that. Yes. Funniest moments, embarrassing moments, bloopers, I've got to know, you've got to give me something. I know that some kind of lunacy must have happened on the show.
1: Well, we had a, a product... Um, that I was going to put in a, an Indonesian for, um which is a wonderful dish, whole um, series of dishes, and it was called trasi T-R-A-S-S-I, T-R-A-S-S-S-I. rather like truss. It's like trussy This is the most vile-smelling stuff that you have ever encountered.
0: It, it would be like Vegemite.
1: Oh no, Vegemite's wonderful. Oh come on. <laughs> <laughs> I can see you've been to Australia. Oh yeah. <laughs> um okay, now this smells like rotten fish of the worst kind, you know, of the very worst kind. Oh. And it's a pasty, nasty looking stuff, but my goodness, what a wonderful flavour it develops. So I said in the rehearsal in the afternoon, you know, I think what I'm gonna do people won't believe me when I say that it's really nasty. I'll go into the audience and we'll get close up shots of people smelling it and recoiling. That'll be fun. (laughs) And Trina said, Okay, that's fine. And I said, Yeah and whilst you're at it, could you get me a clothes peg? Why? (laughs) Well, I I think if I put a clothes peg on my mouth and I did this, it would be fun and then I could you think I'm kidding? And then I'll go into the clothes peg and mine those into the audience.
0: How did it come off?
1: Well Uh, On the night, there's all the 380 people there. I get to this point, I'm ready to, um, and and I put the clothes peg (laughs) on. And you think I'm kidding? I walk into the audience, all the lights go up, and there's 380 people with clothes pegs on them. Oh, come on. No. She had bought out the entire clothes peggery, you know, of Ottawa, Canada.
0: Trina set that up? Yeah. She is cheeky.
1: (laughs) You know, that was one, I looked at that, and that's the only time that Trina said that she was ever able to get me.
0: No, she, I understand that maybe she had hid ingredients to get you sort of... T-
1: oh, yeah, I but I would always get out of that somehow. Would but you? This was the only one where I was speechless. Did she ever stick
0: her bra on a hollow rolling pin? Oh,
1: God, yes. <laughs> Yes, yes. there were supposed to be recipes. I thought it was a brilliant idea to hollow out a rolling pin.
0: And stash oh, some recipes in there, in there. Yeah, yeah.
1: I was so I was so tickled about this. And I unscrewed one end and then pulled this out, and then it's her bra.
0: <laughs> did you keep that in, or did that get cut yeah, well, of
1: course. Oh, yes. Everything was kept in because we did it in the time. Uh, there was, with a live audience, that is a live show. We rehearsed it in the afternoon, yeah. and we shot it in the
0: evening. Let, let me tell you, Graham, I remember... On the Galloping Gourmet, <laughs> when you came out with swim flippers on.
1: Oh yes, yes. I remember that. Yeah, and a top hat, wasn't <laughs> it?
0: <laughs> was that was that the same one? Were you pantless in that one as well? well you must have been, I guess, with swim flippers. Oh, I guess you could combine the both. But anyway.
1: Yes, I, I think that was a story about um, a young lady who'd been married and to an Olympic uh, diver, oh. uh, and he did this magnificent dive on their honeymoon and she got into the pool and started swimming, um, holding her nose with just one arm. And he was very thrilled, you know, that he, his masculine heart was overwhelmed by this incredible child who, who just swam holding her nose. And they thought, you know, but she did about 500 laps in the pool. <laughs> she was getting all the attention from the hotel. And they'd agreed that they would never talk about their past, either of them. Um, well, he let her know that he got three gold medals, but she never uh, let on. But in the end, he managed to pry it out of her. You know, well, I was a streetwalker in Venice, um, and not particularly funny. But you know, by the time that you've worn <laughs> flippers and everything else, um, it was the accoutrement which went towards the joke rather yep, than the yep. joke itself. You weren't there when when I actually milked the cow on the set.
0: You know that would have been burned in forever, and I don't yes, remember right.
1: that. Yes, I did a syllabub. Yeah. yeah.
0: You know, one time we—I'm involved with a Christian camp called Teen Ranch, and uh, at the end of the week they have sort of a rodeo, and and they have hockey teams that come up there, and and uh, I remember this one particular team. Well, we always did a wild cow milking thing, you know. So you throw in a couple of cows, and you have three teams, and yeah. the first team to get a half a cup of milk, you know, way to yeah. go. Yeah. But we, we one week we threw in a steer. Uh. Anyway, you know, okay. <laughs> hockey players from the city didn't really have a clue. Folks on the line with Graham Kerr, the Galloping Gourmet, moving right along. Thinking not a moment too soon. Nineteen seventy-one, bit of a tough year for you. Yes. What happened?
1: Well, seventy-one, we were hit by a a large vegetable truck um, from behind. We were we were. I was partially paralyzed. Trina had to have half a lung removed eventually, oh. and uh, we were told that. You know, the Galloping Gourmet was over. Um, I couldn't stand up to do it. I tried to do a thing called Critics' Choice, where I got famous people like Liberace and Tiny Tim, (laughs) oh dear, Um, to be able to come and and talk about food, and uh, that really didn't work. So um, we we set out uh, at the suggestion of a Scottish physician to sail around the world. And um, he said, I think you're going to get yet." full movement back again if you just catch your balance and pull some lines
0: (laughs) that was brilliant
1: and i thought "Ah, there's a doctor after my own heart i'd always wanted to do that
0: i don't think your wife appreciated the doctor's advice though
1: she didn't she 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 used to cry i didn't know that until we got off for two years every time the boat healed suddenly um she she would cry and out of fear, because she nearly drowned twice as a child. But oh. This is the kind of woman she is. She knew that I wanted to do this, and, and therefore, for her, that was the thing to do.
0: Wow. Is it true that you, you uh, there was a bit of a dare that happened with an 11,000-square-foot mansion with a pool on Chesapeake Bay?
1: Well, Trina saw this, and we've been at sea for two years, Inch.
0: You've been at sea... Now, let's just not glaze over that, folks. Yeah. I mean, this is no little Jimmy Buffett living in his boat down in, uh, you know, the Caribbean while it's tied up stuff. This is sailed for two years.
1: Oh, sailed at 24,000 miles. Yeah.
0: Good absolutely. night. Wow. Yeah. Sorry.
1: No, no. Please. Um, and, um, no, and we really... we Actually, we've got... Buffett is about right. <laughs> <laughs> it's thrown from one side to the other. um, um so we, we actually wound up in the Chesapeake Bay. Um, Trina sees this house and says, oh, isn't that a wonderful house? And it really was. It was like a miniature gone with the wind, you know, a tower. Um And it was in nine acres of uh, wonderful lawn and beautiful big trees and swans and a swimming pool and the whole bit. And a huge long dock. And perfectly white, you know, with seven pillars on either side. Uh, five, six. I should have noticed that there weren't seven. <laughs> um, and so uh, after about the third time that she said it, and she's the least demanding person I've ever met in my whole life. She, things don't mean anything to her. She oh, look at that. Isn't that lovely? I said, I'll tell you what I'll do since we're stuck here because I'd run aground. I'm going to row ashore and make the guy an offer for the house if he's in, and um, and if you see him running down after me down the dock with a gun, you'll know that uh, our it, it, offer it was refused. It <laughs> was, was not a good idea. And and she said, "Okay, are oh, you You wouldn't do that." I, yeah, I would just for fun. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want that to happen, but I it was just to while away the time and give us some fun. So I went knocked on the door, and it's a bit of a long story, but I said, do you have a gun? And I I said, yes. And I said, is it a big one? He said, it's a duck hunting gun. I said, well, that'll do. Would you chase me down the dock with it? Why would I do that? So I told him, and he said, okay, make your offer. I said, oh, do I have to? He said, yes. If we're going to play the game properly, make your offer. The long and short of it was that he said, "We." He said first to him, or he said, "You're right. I'm going to get my gun." And then he stopped at the door and he said, "But tell me, um, if you could get that amount of money, how soon could you get it?" And I said, "Well, I don't know. I'll call, call my accountant in New York and find out." So we called, and I, I cut the phone, uh, you know, with my hand and uh, spoke over it to him. I said, "He he says he can get it by Tuesday." And so he got out from his chair, and he reached forward, and he got my hand off the off the the, the receiver, and he shook it. He said, "The place is yours."
0: Oh my goodness.
1: Two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Oh. Nine acres, an eighteen fourteen white colonial mansion, ten thousand oh. square feet.
0: That I mean. That's a, that's an amazing story. That is so. Uh
1: it's so amazing. I, I still, to this day, do not know why he quit um, that, except for the fact that it cost $10,000 a year to heat. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, of course, now you're in a 1,300-square-foot home built as snug yes. as a ship.
1: Yes. Yeah, we took the plans for the boat and we morphed it into a house because we, as a whole family, were able to live in smaller space that everybody thought was large. Um because it was a bigger boat that's seventy one feet. Yes. Um and
0: named after your wife, I think?
1: Yes. So why not build a house that is seventy one feet and eighteen feet wide? Perfect. Um and see what that does because it's a it's a smaller footprint. Um it uses much less fuel, you know, obviously than the ten thousand thing did. Um <laughs> And that's all the space we actually needed, so we designed it ergonomically to be able to do the job, and it won an award for that.
0: I would have thought with that lovely experience your wife had on your on your boat that you might have set up the sprinkler systems to shoot <laughs> salt water at the windows every once in a while. You know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, we're waiting it to tip. It, it's actually on an earthquake fault here.
0: The Skagit Valley, is it?
1: I, yes, I'm, I've designed it so that it, it, it can ride out a Force 9 earthquake. Uh-oh. So if it does tip alarmingly, I'll get the logbook out.
0: Yeah. Well, again, folks, on the phone, and we're just about finished with our time here. So appreciated. It's been uh, an absolute pleasure to chat with you. Graham Kerr, of course, we all know him as the Galloping Gourmet. Graham, much like actor Stephen Baldwin, who I chatted with uh, uh, last year, I think, on the show, your spiritual journey really began with your maid witnessing to your to your wife first. And I know maid is sort of a, you use that term loosely, because she was more of a family friend than anything.
1: Yeah, she actually arrived at our front door of that particular house and said, you know, I'm not a maid, I'm a missionary, and I want to go to Haiti. And I, my pastor says, we don't have enough money in the church to send you, so... He said, "Find yourself some rich folks who live in a big house down by the water, and and go serve them as a maid, and put the money in a savings account." And I had never heard anything like that before. You know, we we had a hotel next door to a church, and uh, my father used to go hostile every Sunday when they rang the bells. Oh! Um, and uh, all the parishioners used to come in and and drink pink gins and complain about the vicar's servants. <laughs> So that's as close as I'd ever got to Christianity. Oh, my goodness. And, um, and here was this child, and I said, well, how do you expect to communicate in Haiti? Do you know their patois? And she said, no, sir, but I've got strong hands, and I've got a willing back. And um, uh, so I've got a, a, a strong back and willing hands, and I've got Jesus in my heart, and that's all I need. And I, I was deflated totally that's like a galleon that runs out of, out of wind and um so i brought her in introduced her to trina and we were desperate for help at that time really you know we our life was just falling apart sure. at the seams. and she came in and she realized she'd arrived amongst a different patois that she didn't know how to speak anyway and she certainly didn't know how to reach these people except that she was a missionary at heart and she knew that we needed jesus badly and so she went back to a pastor, and the pastor said, Well, this is the card that comes out through prayer and fasting. In that little church in Wilmington, Delaware, it was a storefront church with naked bulbs hanging from the ceiling and 70 members in their congregation, and they prayed and fasted for us.
0: You are you are quite good with the accents, I might say. <laughs> I'm thinking the one-man show quite. was next. Yes,
1: we won't go beyond quite. No,
0: but. we'll just stay with quite. <laughs> well, um... Your maid, uh, Ruthie or Ducky? Which name should we use here? Oh, um, Ruthie.
1: Yeah, but uh, did your wife not call her Ducky? Oh, well, yes. Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> Trina has a way of calling most people Ducky. Right. It's very affectionate.
0: Right. Okay, I'll have to write that one down. Yeah. I remember reading or coming across her testimony, and I, and one of the moments that really got me was uh, when, I, I guess your youngest daughter, Karina, mm-hmm. said to Trina, Mommy, is, is your Jesus beating in your heart like he's beating in mine? Yes. Yeah. Yes. when I guess your wife was sort of witnessing to your, to your daughter and I just thought wow what a poignant moment
1: Yes and do you know we knew so little at that time um, we were on the Donahue show three th- th- three times running um, uh, Donahue had us back because uh, we were not repeating the you know the slogans you know we, we were a different couple we'd come from nowhere to Jesus in one night um in trina's case and in one month for me (laughs) yeah yeah um but and because of that was there are some people who see jesus by candlelight uh, all their life um we 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 caught him in a kodak instamatic camera moment you know sudden flash in the darkness there he is Hmm. and um and we were desperately needy couple Um,
0: Oh, well, I mean, desperate to the point, and folks, you've got to understand this. Uh, Trina, if I understand things right here, Graham, you know, had a mouth that could strip the wallpaper off the wall.
1: Oh, yeah, Uh, easily.
0: Violent, horrid, uh, used to swear like a trooper, angry, critical spirit, rage.
1: Yes. The rage was built out of um, having had a thorondotomy, which is a massive um, operation on the lung, and finding out there wasn't necessary... Um, and what she had was Davon um, as a painkiller afterwards, and, um, and then there was Benzedrine to get her feeling better in the morning, and then there was um, something to put her to sleep, uh, Morgadon to put her to sleep, so she was taking six different kinds of medically prescribed um, things, and then up to 60 milligrams of Valium a day, and she was walking into walls, she was so she was so spaced out, wow. and um, our physician said she's going to have to go away to, a, to an institution for an indeterminate period of time to try and break her of these um, addictions.
0: Graham, was she not fourteen days away basically or thereabouts from being committed yes. b- before surrendering yeah, yeah, to christ was,
1: we were, we were t- two weeks away from oh. having to make the voluntary commitment yeah, and uh, That was the day when she went to a small black um, church in Wilmington, not in Wilmington, Delaware, but um, in a base called Bethlehem, Maryland. And the the little church from Wilmington drove down in two school buses um, to be there for the lady that they prayed for. And uh, she just went to take the water. She thought it might do her some good. And um, the pastor's name was Friend, Chester Friend. And he said, y'all know what you do in here. And she she said, yeah, um, of course I do. I wouldn't be here otherwise. Um, you might not get it tonight. Nah. I, you know, I said, oh, yes, I will. Um, and so she was baptized. I, I'm cutting that very short because it's a wonderful testimony. It is. To speak to her about that. And um, she sees a vision of Jesus after she's baptized. And he moves forward and he smiles at her in a way that she has never seen a smile before. And he touched her heart and he said something which she can't remember. Hmm. But she was thrilled, um, totally thrilled and changed in that one touch. And um, she came back home, threw all the pills down the the loo um, and pulled the chain on her past, had a wonderful night's sleep and has never been the same woman since.
0: Even to the point where the doctor was absolutely flabbergasted at the fact that, you know, here's Trina, who was at one time, as you said, up to 60 milligrams of Valium a day, was able to stop cold turkey and have no side effects whatsoever. Now, I've heard testimonies, these sort of instantaneous testimonies, and I don't know, they almost seem to be very rare these days, and you must look at God and go, why? Why? Why Trina? Why? I mean, you were a little thicker. It took a you know a month or so to get things going and talking to elm trees in the backyard and uh, having a moment with God in Ottawa. You know, I didn't even think God knew where Ottawa was.
1: <laughs> I think after that it was uh, he started to take more interest in Ottawa. <laughs> <laughs> but I
0: like the fact. I love the fact that as as Trina would say, she kept her golden zipper shut. Uh, she didn't shove Jesus down her husband's throat. She, uh, as a matter of fact, you found out in a Safeway store that your wife had, I did. had bought I did. into the into the Jesus stuff.
1: This This lady with a beehive haircut and no makeup on <laughs> comes up behind me and says, Hallelujah, hallelujah, I was baptized in the same way as your wife was. Glory, glory. <laughs> And I looked at this woman as if she would nutters, you know, and, and said, yes, isn't that wonderful? You know, I didn't want to sort of say, you're out of your mind. You know, if she got near a baptism, she'd make it boil. and um,
0: <laughs> Maybe that's why the water was so cold. <laughs> yeah, really.
1: And so um, she, uh, I went back and, and confronted Trina. I got everybody in the house because we had some builders in at the time. I said, this is the funniest mistaken identity thing you've ever heard listen to this and I told them and they she looked up at me and she said I was oh man and I felt like about two inches tall and you know got out of that room as quickly as I could and I said well do you want me to become a Christian too and she said look I need Jesus I know that I don't know about you why don't you ask him that yourself well done hm mm. and so you know that's been our um, our sort of motto, if you <laughs> will. Sure. You know, I can't jump in front of a person and demand that they come to Jesus. I really, I, that's not my style. And God knows that. But, I mean, God knows how much I long for people that I love to come to know him. Hmm. Um, and do you know, 1 Thessalonians 4.11 says it so brilliantly. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Work with your hands. Mind your own business do the best you can to earn the respect of those who do not believe as you believe and be beholden to no man now i take the word respect to be a bridge building process if i do what i do well enough then a people may just give me the time of day to talk to them and to answer their questions about the most important question of the whole that 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 there is an intimate, personal relationship with Christ is possible.
0: I'm just thinking of the, you know, these affairs that you had, Mm -hmm. and you were the high priest of hedonism. There's a term you want to have as your epitaph, isn't it? (laughs) Um, But it must have been brutally awkward to try and play family after your conversions.
1: Do you know, really, it it wasn't. We were so blown away um, as the old men... You know, old man old woman that you know we we had become new behold all things become new and our kids looked at us as to say well you've got to admit it these guys have really gone through something and um and one after the other including my 74 year old mother i um, um, uh, believed because of the enormous change that had taken place in our lives so And, uh, you know, you talk about my past. I am a forgiven guy. You know, I broke and confessed every single thing. There isn't a single secret in my life. And I think God has to lead in doing that. I don't want anybody listening today to think, oh, good, I can get out from under that. If God says do it, then do it. And I broke. I sobbed my heart out and just felt that I was probably going to help the enemy to do a dreadful thing for my wife's faith but on the contrary i opened my eyes and i looked into her eyes and uh, she said oh i forgive you and i love you and uh, so there is nothing that anybody can suggest to me out of my past that that would be a skeleton out of my cupboard i've confessed it all and been forgiven for it all and i have a whole new life
0: You know, if there's anything that we can learn from this British man who lives in the middle of uh, the lunacy of American evangelicalism (laughs) uh, is beware the barrenness of the busy life. Yes.
1: Oh, yes. That is, um, I am so concerned now about the life that I see people living, and I'm trying to do the best I can. I just feel like I'm in a mudslide. Trying to grab people, you know, um, as they come oozing past. Hmm. We're gradually being destroyed, um, and uh, in the name of high technology, um, we uh, and we, we think that all of these cute little things are having some effect upon us and uh, you know making our life better and more fun. Hmm. But they're not.
0: You know, of uh, I'm just thinking back through our interview and and all the accents that you. You've done of course travelling around the world how many times oh, 28 times. That's just an amazing feat in and of itself. But these accents you've been able to master, I wonder if maybe you could even tell me what language you think this is, actually, okay? <laughs> this is you on YouTube. <laughs> and you're and you're you're <laughs> You're you're cutting up something on a cutting board,
1: (laughs) and and you're being your usual cheeky self. You've got
0: those brilliant British facial expressions, that dry sense of humor, and you're about to take a bag of ice and put it in a towel and smash it on the floor.
1: (laughs) And I don't know what language it is. Uh, It wasn't a language. It was just um, a Chinese (laughs) effort. (laughs) But the
0: the funny thing is, is how you can you your humor translates through the translation. I mean, you know, they're obviously overdubbing you here. I think it was tongues, actually. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, you were forty when you first surrendered your life to Christ, and now that you are in your seventies, I I apologize for letting the cat out of the bag. No, please,
1: that's fine.
0: You've lived almost the same amount of years following Christ as you did living as the high priest of hedonism. Yes. If you were to speak at your own funeral, a bit macabre, just mentioning that, but if you were to speak at your own funeral, a final comment from Graham Kerr. what would you say?
1: I tried, and then I tried again, and then I tried again, um, just to get close enough to be obedient.
0: Well said. Folks, this book, Day by Day Gourmet Cookbook, it is a tremendous uh, cookbook, but but it is so much more than that. As I said off the top of this interview, the chapters at the beginning of this book, you are a brilliant writer. You, you know, you have that gift, not like the Yanks. Uh, most of the Yanks kind of rattle on about stuff a little long. You you bring things to a boil
1: fairly quickly. Thank you <laughs> very much. <laughs>
0: and it was a privilege to speak with you. Graham, oh, uh,
1: I enjoyed it thoroughly. Thank you for having me. God bless you, mate. And bless
0: you. Bye-bye. The Galloping Gourmet on the Drew Marshall Show. Sharp guy, huh? Those British people, they can talk about anything, and it just sounds smart, doesn't it? Okay, short break. And when we come back, the Council of many on our show, where people uh, write in, ask us a question about a situation they're in. And then we get your points of view on it. This week, uh, a man says, should I marry a woman in order to rescue her and her children from a life of extreme poverty? We'll get your take on this right after our break. And then come back with uh, Max Lucado on The Drew Marshall Show. Stay with us. Like what you've heard? Listen again online at DrewMarshall.ca. Are you trying to figure out a way to let thousands know about your product, organization, or business? At just pennies per person, advertising on The Drew Marshall Show is far less expensive than television or print. So why not advertise on The Drew Marshall Show? The Drew Marshall Show covers a population of over 6 million with an estimated listenership of 100,000. The Drew Marshall Show is 100% live, talkback radio, and uniquely Canadian. Therefore, people listen longer. The Drew Marshall Show is listened to by men and women of all ages. People who care, people who have opinions, and people who respond. For more information about advertising on The Drew Marshall Show, just contact us through our website at www.drewmarshall.ca. That's drewmarshall.ca. The Drew Marshall Show, Canada's most listened to spiritual talkback program.